Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? And when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. It was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. I remember when our children were little for quite a few years, we went without a TV in our life. Uh, we just didn't want the commercials and thought they'd be better off doing other things. We did end up getting one again eventually, but for a while we went without a TV. And I don't even know where I was, but I was somewhere uh, where there was a TV playing, and there was a couple things that got stuck in my head from when I was just around it for those brief times. One of them was this little song 
this little kind of ditty that went, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? To this day, I don't know what it is. It just got stuck in my head. And so I'd be working along, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? And I'm going, what in the world is Carmen San Diego? I don't even know what it is. Why is it stuck in my head? And the other one was Nickelodeon Nation. I still don't know what that is either. And I can remember thinking, isn't it in the question, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? It's in San Diego, right? But you know what? To this day, I still don't know if Carmen San Diego is a place, if it was a TV show, if it was an event, if it was a person. It's a person? She's a person. Thank you. Um, I suppose I could have Googled it probably, but... Still, that tune can still get kind of stuck in my head even today. I don't know why it's such an effective tune. But like I said, up until right now, now I know it's a person. Don't know anything else about her, but I know it's a person at least. Well, at this point in our study of the book of Hebrews, you might be feeling that way about Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek has come up a few weeks in a row, and we keep saying we're not learning about Melchizedek yet. And so he just kind of gets left in mystery. But today... We're going to dig in a little bit, and we're going to find out some things about Melchizedek. He came up to Melchizedek in chapter 5 and mentioned him for the first time as he's trying to explain to us the high priestly ministry of Christ and what he's accomplishing for us. And then he told the people, you know what, I'd like to go further into this, but you're not ready for it. You've become dull in your hearing, and so you, you haven't grown the way you should, so you're really not ready for this subject. But then he goes through after correcting them, Now he's going right back into it. So he is going to actually get in and continue on. And so, so are we. And so we're going to dig in a little bit and find out about this character named Melchizedek. Well, Melchizedek, even in the Old Testament, has a lot of mystery surrounding him. There's a lot of shadow. So we're not going to get all of our questions answered. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, the author uses Melchizedek and the things that are revealed about him, the things that we know about him, to teach us some truths about Jesus Christ. But he also uses some things that we don't know about him. He leaves him a little bit clouded in mystery. And he uses that mystery to reveal more things to us about Jesus Christ as well. And so that's how we're going to look at it this morning, is we're going to answer the question of who is Melchizedek, who we're really going to be learning about is our Savior, Jesus Christ. He doesn't show up a lot in the in the Bible. In fact, if you go on to Bible Gateway or pick up a concordance and punch in the name Melchizedek, you're going to find that he shows up in, in two places in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 14, Psalm 110, verse 4. And then you're going to find out that he shows up about eight places in the book of Hebrews. And so there's not a wealth of information about this individual Melchizedek. In Genesis 14, you find out about Melchizedek that Abraham comes across him. The events that bring this up is Abraham, you remember when he left Ur of the Chaldees to go to the place that God was going to show him. God told Abraham, leave your family, your father's house, and go to the place that I'll show you. Well, he did part of it. He left, but he brought his father with him. And another person that he brought with him was his nephew, Lot. Well, news came to Abraham. There's some kings that came through and they attacked the villages and the towns that were there, and they took Lot captive. And Abraham found out that Lot had been taken prisoner by these these kings. And so Abraham got his men all together that were trained, and he took off after them. And he went and he defeated the kings there, and he rescued Lot. And on his way back, he's got all the plunder. He's got all the goods that all the these kings in the conquering these cities had taken with them. Now Abraham has it all. And on his way back, He meets this guy named Melchizedek. Melchizedek came out and he said said that he was the king of Salem. 
and the priest of the Most High God. That's about all the information that we have from him. So he's king of Salem, so more than likely ancient Jerusalem. And he's the priest of the Most High God. To this individual, Abraham takes a tenth of everything that he just got, and he gives it to this character, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and that's about the end of it. That's about all you hear about Melchizedek until you get to Psalm 110. When you get to Psalm 110, verse 4, this should be a little bit familiar with us, because Psalm 110, verse 1 was a passage that he already quoted earlier in, in the book of Hebrews. Remember the passage where God says, And the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that was referring to Jesus, obviously. Well, just three verses later in verse 4, God says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this brings up something interesting because the priesthood, the Old Testament Levitical priesthood, is called that because it was with the tribe of Levi. Remember Moses' brother Aaron was made the first high priest and his descendants were made priests under him. And then when he died, one of his sons would become the high priest. And when he died, one of his sons would become the high priest. And it got handed down that way through generations, but it remained in Aaron's family within the tribe of Levi. Earlier in Hebrews, in our study in chapter 5, he quotes that passage. He is sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is not of the tribe of Levi. He's not a descendant of Aaron. He's of the tribe of Judah. The point that he's making is that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron. And so who is this person, Melchizedek? First of all, from the things that are revealed, the revelation of Melchizedek, first of all, speaks of character. It speaks of the character of himself and of Jesus Christ. Now, he does this through defining his names. There's a couple things that we know about Melchizedek. We know that his name is Melchizedek, which means that he's the king of righteousness. And so that, he's making that comparison that just as Melchizedek was the king of righteousness, Jesus Christ is righteous also. You know what, this was unfortunately somewhat in contrast to Aaron's priesthood. The priesthood wasn't handed down based on moral qualifications. In other words, it wasn't necessarily given to godly people. It was handed down to whoever their children were. And so some of them were godly, some of them were not. Eli's sons were very ungodly, but they were priests. Samuel, his kids had the same problems. And so sometimes you have very ungodly priests because it just went by genealogy. It wasn't, didn't take any amount of character to be appointed to high priest. But you know what? It's very different here. Because Melchizedek, he was a priest of character. He was righteous. It also says not only was he king of righteousness, but the word Salem means, means peace. So it says that he was also the king of peace. So right in this little bit, we see a few similarities with Jesus. We see the righteousness. We see peace. And we also see the fact that he is a king and a priest as we know that Jesus is actually three things, prophet, priest, and king. But then in Hebrews, as it makes that switch from Melchizedek to Jesus, it adds a few more things to the passage. As we look in verses 26 through 28, it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And then notice how it describes him. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The, the priests of the Old Testament, in their weaknesses, because of their own sinfulness, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they were ready to offer them for the people. 
Jesus has no need to offer a sacrifice for his own sins because he doesn't have any. The words that it used to describe Jesus go on a little bit deeper than that. He says he's innocent. The very reason a priest would have to bring a sacrifice for his own sins is because he was not innocent. But even more than that, even more than innocent, we find that he was holy. Holy. A lot of times I know when I think of, of holiness, I often think of just the kind of the idea of innocence. That there's a lack of sin. That he's, that he's holy without sin. But holiness actually is greater than that. Holiness does not just mean an absence of, of sin. It means that he is wholly good. In other words, it's not just taking away the negative. It's focusing on the positive. That God is wholly good. That He's completely good. And He's completely just. And so it describes Jesus in that way. Just as Melchizedek was a king of righteousness, king of peace, Jesus Christ is holy. He's innocent. He is separate from sinners. Remember how we already talked about that a little bit before? The Bible points out that Jesus experienced temptations like we do, except for one thing. He had no sin within him. He was apart from sin. Remember, we weren't created with sin to begin with either. That was something that was added later through our rebellion against God. So Jesus was still completely man, but he did not have a sinful nature. He was completely good. He was holy. And in that sense, he was separate from sinners. So he has the uncanny ability to know everything that we go through, every struggle that we have, because he's experienced temptation to even a greater degree. But at the same time, he didn't fall into the muck and the mire like we did. He didn't fall into the guilt and the sin. He is separate from sinners. And he says, above even the heavens. That's our Savior. So the first thing that we see about Melchizedek is that he is defined by his character. Righteousness, peace. Jesus Christ also is exalted because of his character. Holy, innocence, separate from sinners, above the heavens. But not only do we see his character in his revelation of who Melchizedek is, but also in the revelation of Melchizedek speaks of his position. His position. And this is really where it's getting down to the point. You see, what he had said about Melchizedek back in, in Hebrews chapter 5, he had quoted from Psalm 110 verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the point that he's making, if the Old Testament priesthood was supposed to continue, if it was good enough, if it was accomplished for us what we need, then why did God later promise this new priest? If the Levitical priesthood was good enough, then it would have just kept going. God would have not promised a new priest rising after a different order, this order of Melchizedek, if that was good enough. And that's exactly the point that he makes. Notice in verse 11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? And keep in mind that that's exactly what these people are thinking about going back to. They're thinking about going back to that Levitical priesthood, back to the temple and offering their sacrifices. And he's telling them, you're going back to something far inferior than Jesus Christ if you do that. He's making the comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek in his priesthood. And he's using that to make a contrast between Jesus and the priesthood of Aaron, the priesthood of the Levites. Just look at the words that he used within the passage. He uses the word superior in verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. He's going back to that story with Abraham. Abraham comes out of the battle against the kings after rescuing Lot. And Melchizedek meets him. And two things happen. 
Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Now, the point that the author is making is, how does that work? He says it's beyond dispute that the lesser is always blessed by the greater. Right? It's the person of the greater authority that always pronounces the blessing on the person of lesser authority. And he says, it is also beyond dispute that the lesser in authority always pays taxes to the greater in authority. Now, I use the word taxes. They use the word tithe. Now, this is the reason. The tithe just means, as it says of Abraham, that he gave a tenth. That's what tithe means. It literally means a tenth, ten percent. I remember being in a church one time and they were talking about giving and they said, maybe you want to tithe four percent. Maybe you want to tithe six percent. I was like, that's impossible. How can you give a four percent, ten percent? The word means ten percent. What does Abraham do? Abraham gives a tenth to Melchizedek. He gives a, a tithe that uses the word in other places here. He gives a tithe to Melchizedek. Well, what was a tithe? The Jewish people paid actually three different tithes. They paid a 10%, a tithe, that went to provide for kind of more of their, what we'd look as our government things, their civil part of the institution. But remember, their civil and their ceremonial, or their civil and their religious was all together. And so they paid a tithe that kind of went to handle the civil affairs. And they paid another tithe that went to handle the ceremonial affairs. In other words, supporting the priests and the work of the ministry of God. And then they paid another tithe, but this tithe only uh, was spread over three years. So they basically paid two and a third tithes each year to support it. It was basically like paying their taxes to their government, like paying their tithe to their church or to their to the ministry of God, and then another third of one that, if I remember right, I think it was dealing with the temple, to provide for the temple. And so they pay these tithes. And so it is. It's fitting to look at that, to think about that kind of like a tax. And it says if Abraham is willing to pay tax to Melchizedek, He's recognizing that Melchizedek is in a superior position as the priest of the Most High God. And so Abraham pays him that tithe. But he says also we see at the same time that Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Now you think, wait a minute, Abraham was chosen out of all the people on the face of the earth to be the father of God's chosen people. And you're going to bless Abraham? He ought to be blessing you. Not so. This Melchizedek, whoever he was, this priest of the Most High God, was superior to Abraham and blessed Abraham. And then he goes on to make the point. Moses, none of those guys were around yet. They would all be descendants of Abraham later on. So you could say, which is what he does say in Hebrews, that the whole Levitical priesthood, because they're all from Abraham's descendants, he said they're still in the loins of Abraham. In other words, they're still in Abraham's body. All the genetic makeup that's going to make up all of his descendants is still within Abraham. And so he's saying you could say, that the Levitical priesthood paid tithe to the Melchizedek priesthood. That's the point he's making. So he's saying, look, this priesthood that you want to go back to is inferior. We know it's inferior because it was one blessed through Abraham, blessed by Melchizedek, and it also was subservient in paying tithes to Melchizedek. And so this priesthood that he's making the connection to Jesus Christ, this priesthood of Melchizedek, that is the kind of priesthood that Jesus is, is superior to the Aaronic priesthood. And that's why he uses that word, he uses that word superior. Other words that he uses within the passage, notice in verse 19, it says that the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And then also in verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. He also uses the word perfect. 
Remember, we trace that all through Hebrews. It uses the word perfect repeatedly through this. Right in this passage alone, in verse 11, it says, If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been? In other words, the point he's making is, perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. And he reemphasizes that in verse 19, where he says, The law made nothing perfect. But when we get down to the very last verse of chapter 7, verse 28, It says, the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And you know what? Just to back up just a little bit, if we look back into Hebrews chapter 2, it says in verse 10, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Also in chapter 5, verse 9, it says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see, it's been making very clear throughout the book of Hebrews that the law didn't make anything perfect. It pictured the Christ that was to come, but it did not make anything perfect. It is only in Jesus Christ that we find that perfect high priest that provides that perfect salvation, that better hope, that better covenant for us. But then not only do we see the things about Christ revealed in the revelations of Melchizedek, there's also, uh, as I said, a bunch of mystery that clouds him. And what do we learn through the mystery? Well, through the mystery of Melchizedek, it speaks, first of all, of endless life. He says there's some things that we don't know about Melchizedek. We don't know anything about his genealogy. Where did he come from? You see, the Levitical priesthood was based completely upon that, as we already mentioned. Melchizedek wasn't tied to genealogy at all, apparently. Or I think the point that he's actually making is, We just don't know it. You see, there's things about Melchizedek that we don't know. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. And he uses that mystery. I don't think he's he's not saying that Melchizedek, I don't believe, was some kind of an angelic being or that he was the angel of the Lord that, that appears at different places through the Old Testament. To some people, they think that is a possibility. That I guess it's possible. But I don't think that's what it's doing. I think what he's doing is he's using the mystery, the things that we don't know about Melchizedek, to teach what we do know about Jesus Christ. So he says, Melchizedek's priesthood, what do we say? What does it say in Psalm 110? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We don't know when Melchizedek died. Apparently there was no succession to his priesthood before Christ. There was no, nobody appointed when he died to continue his priesthood. That shifted from focus on that to Aaron's priesthood. But he says we see the succession of it in Jesus Christ's priesthood because there was no there was no end brought to Melchizedek's priesthood. It just continues. It's based on the power of an indestructible life. And he makes that transition from Melchizedek to Jesus, and he refers to Jesus as the one who lives forever, who who continually abides, who's not brought to an end. We see these in, in verses three and in verse eight. It says in verse three. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Also in verses 16 through 17, we notice it says, "...who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek." And then in verses 23 through 25, It says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The priesthood of Aaron, of the Levitical priesthood, they were prevented. In other words, each priest's ministry came to an end. Why? Because he died. When he died, he had to be replaced. Melchizedek, we got no record of his death. We got no record of him being replaced. But then we get to Psalm 110 and we see this promise of this other priest that's going to arise after the order of Melchizedek that's going to be based on the power of an indestructible life. And so we see Jesus who went to the cross and died and three days later rose again from the dead to overcome sin and death on our behalf. Forty days after that, he ascends up into heaven and it says that he is there at the right hand of God making intercession for us. We don't have a dead Savior. We have a living Savior. We don't have a high priest that is subject to death. We have one that died and is risen again and is alive forevermore. We have a high priest that is still accomplishing for us what we need to be accomplished. Where else do you find that? The Muslims look to Muhammad as as their prophet, and he's been dead many years. Buddhism looks to Buddha. Confucianism looks to Confucius. Again, people that have been dead for many years. Only in Christianity do we have a living Savior. Do we have this abiding high priest whom we celebrate and whom we follow. The mystery of Melchizedek helps us to see those things clearly. Not only do we see his endless life, but we also see something that is directly connected to that. And this is where the rubber really meets the road for us. It speaks of accomplishment. Notice in in verse 11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been? In other words, he's pointing out, look, the Levitical priesthood was not able to accomplish your forgiveness. But then when we look in verses 18 and 19, it says, on the one hand, the former command is set aside because of its weaknesses, its uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So you see, he says, he continues with that thought that the, the old priesthood could not accomplish this. It couldn't make anything perfect. It couldn't make us perfect. It couldn't atone for our sins. But when that is set aside in this Melchizedekian priesthood that Jesus Christ takes on, comes into play, he can. He says a better hope is introduced. This better covenant that we have. And then finally, in verse 25, it says, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. You see, the point is that Jesus Christ not only can accomplish it, He has accomplished it. Jesus Christ, through His death and resurrection on the cross, has accomplished our salvation. It says that He is able to save to the uttermost. Or some some translations say He is able to save completely. That's the idea. He is able to save us completely. He offered a once-for-all sacrifice. His sacrifice was completely sufficient to completely save you from your sins. That is awesome. We have this high priest who was both our priest and our sacrifice. And no matter what you've done, that sacrifice is sufficient. He will utterly save you to the uttermost. I remember went street preaching with another pastor in Tacoma one time years ago. He said he will save you from the from the guttermost to the uttermost. I thought that was kind of a cool statement. 
It has the ability to pull us out of the gutters. What do we see looking at that old priesthood down through the years? Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Trying to come out of the gutter, out of the gutter, out of the gutter, and constantly being left there. It is only through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on that cross that we have this power of an indestructible life. That we have this better hope. That we have this better covenant. You know what? Our background's a little different from theirs. When we look at turning our back on Christ, we're not going back to the temple to offer sacrifices. But no matter what there is behind us that we get tempted sometimes to turn back to, to fall away from Christ, to go back to life like it was before we were saved, no matter what that is, they can't offer you anything that matches this. Whatever that life is will leave you disappointed. It will not offer you that power of an indestructible life. It will not give you that better hope by which you can draw near to God. That's the whole point of the high priest, bringing us near to God. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for what we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for this great hope. Thank you for this indestructible life. Thank you for our Savior and our salvation. It's in his name we pray. Amen.